This is The Guardian. Today, cabinet resignations, a Tory party in turmoil, and a prime minister determined to cling on to power. What would it take for Boris Johnson to resign? We now come to the personal statement I call Sajid Javid. Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful for your permission to make this statement. Yesterday, we began. Yesterday, in the House of Commons, the now former Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, stood up to make a personal statement after dramatically resigning from Boris Johnson's cabinet the night before. I believe that we are all motivated by the national interest and that the public expects us all, all of us, to maintain honesty and to maintain integrity in whatever we do. He told the room, and the Prime Minister, that he'd lost faith in him as a leader of the Conservative Party. Javid confirmed what has been said for months. He feared for the long-term damage that Johnson might have already caused the party's reputation. So loyalty must go both ways. The events of recent months have made it increasingly difficult to be in that team. After months of scandals at the heart of Johnson's government, it seemed that the final straw for Javid and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak came with a revelation that Johnson knew about serious sexual misconduct allegations against Chief Whip Chris Pincher, had promoted him anyway. And then when the story broke, he sent out ministers to deny it. It's not fair on ministerial colleagues to go out every morning defending lines that don't stand up and don't hold up. He'd made clear that the issue for him was the Prime Minister's honesty. He said that he'd first experienced during Partygate the sort of thing of being sent out onto the radio and telly to defend the Prime Minister. And he said he'd been assured at the most senior level in the Prime Minister's team that there were no parties and there were no rules broken. So he assumed that was true, gave him the benefit of the doubt, went out and said that on air, and it very quickly became clear that that was a lie. But I do fear that the reset button can only work so many times. There's only so many times you can turn that machine on and off before you realise that something is fundamentally wrong. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top and I believe that is not going to change. He was um, saying basically, I understand why some people have chosen to stay in Cabinet when I've gone, but not doing anything is a course of action in itself. In other words, if you stay, you're condoning it. I know just how difficult that choice is. But let's be clear, not doing something is an active decision. Javid may have been the first, but by last night, the trickle of resignations had become a flood. Letters from backbench MPs were pouring into the 1922 committee and senior cabinet ministers were urging the prime minister to go. Instead, there were dramatic scenes in the evening as Johnson sacked Michael Gove, one of his closest allies, and remain defiant in the belief that he still has a mandate to govern. And, uh, I, I look at the, uh, the issues that this country faces. Uh, I look at the, the, the pressures that people are, are under and the need for government to focus on their, on, on, on their priorities, uh, which is what we are doing. I look at uh, the biggest war in Europe for, for 80 years, and uh, I cannot for the life of me uh, see how it is responsible just to, to walk away from that. 
From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in focus, Boris Johnson is hanging on by a threat. How long will he last? Gabby Hinsliff, you're a political columnist who has worked in and around Westminster for over two decades. Can you describe what the atmosphere was like as Boris Johnson stood up in Prime Minister's questions? Prime Minister! Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today is a big day as we implement the biggest tax cut. I mean, it was extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. I've seen Prime Minister's questions when, you know, the Prime Minister is clearly on their way out, when they know they're on their way out, when everyone can feel it's the kind of dying days. Here you have a Prime Minister on his last legs, ministers quitting left, right and centre literally during Prime Minister's questions. Three MPs calling for him to go to his face. To take responsibility and resign. And in the most excruciating circumstances, as we all know, he's basically been caught out covering up for bad behaviour, or for once not his own, but that of the, the Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher. And any normal human being would sort of in those circumstances you'd think would want to curl up and die. But the Prime Minister was in, you know, standard, we've all seen it before, brazen it out mode, kind of bullish. Mr Speaker, and when we had the biggest war in Europe for 80 years, Mr Speaker, uh, that, is when, that is exactly the moment that you'd expect a government uh, to continue with its work, not to walk away, uh, Mr Speaker, and to get on with our job and to focus on... The- Since the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and his Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, resigned, can you tell me about who was sitting on the bench behind Johnson? To the left and right, he had Dominic Raab sitting to one side, um, Sue still cross about being made to look an idiot on the Today programme earlier this week when he went out to defend the government line on Pincher, which, which quickly fell apart. Uh, so that's news to me. I wasn't uh, aware of that. Um, and it's not clear to me that that is uh, factually accurate. And on his other side was Nadim Sahawi, who's been Chancellor for all of um, five minutes. This is a team game and you, you play for the team and you deliver for the nation you'd think might be looking pleased to be promoted, but was looking like a man who seriously reconsidering his life choices, possibly because the Treasury Minister resigned literally just as he was coming into the chamber. Um, Liz Truss was missing, although later explained that she had an urgent meeting. And Michael Gove wasn't there, which was a little bit more interesting to a lot of people because of all the cabinet ministers that you felt might be struggling with their consciences, shall we say, um, Gove was one. Gabby, now, as we've said, Boris Johnson approached yesterday's Prime Minister's questions with trademark bluster and buoyancy at a moment where he's fighting for his political life. What was he trying to achieve with his performance? That is really hard to answer for once because it, it goes to the question of what's Boris Johnson's end game, and his end game is just to keep on going, you know, to keep surviving, to keep playing through, to sort of put his head down and and charge through. If you're not resigning, that's all you can do. He's a great believer in something coming up. You know, something will come along because so often in his career in the past that's happened. And I think that's ingrained in his psyche, the idea that he's lucky that something will come along. And, and you know, it's it's best not to despair and just kind of wait for that, that thing, whatever it is, to emerge. Now, Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition, knew that this was a crucial opportunity to try and eviscerate Johnson. What did he say and how did he do? I think it was one of the strongest performances I've ever seen from Starmer, actually. He started off just by um, reading out some words from the testimony of of one of the uh, alleged victims, just talking about what Pincher did to him, how it made him feel. He says, he grabbed my arse and then he slowly moved his hand down in front of my groin. 
I froze. The house was completely silent. And he said, you know, it's, it's hard to listen to. But imagine how much harder, obviously, it was for this person to experience it. And I think it was really important because the sort of the victims have got a bit forgotten in all the sort of ensuing drama because we've moved very quickly on from this was a case of sexual harassment to is the prime minister going to go and so and so's resigned and what does this mean for the leadership chances of blah, blah, blah. So it was really important that he started by that. The bit where I really thought, okay, this is someone who's bringing proper understanding to this was when he said sexual harassment is about power and the power that Pincher had you know, he was given it by the Prime Minister. He was given power over MPs by being made a whip. All in all, it was a really bruising session in the House for Johnson, and yet it wasn't over for him. With really unfortunate timing, he then had to face the Liaison Committee. Can you tell me what that was about? So the Liaison Committee meets you know, regularly and interrogates the Prime Minister regularly. It's all the heads of all the different select committees, um, and they each take it in turn to sort of question him about their um, subject areas. And it's always about the detail. Johnson hates detail. You can sort of carry yourself through Prime Minister's questions sometimes on sheer sort of force of personality, but you can't bluff and bluster in front of the liaison committee so easily. It exposes what you know about what's happening right across government, so it exposes lack of grip, lack of vision, lack of interest in the detail, and it has some forensic questioners on it. Did you say all the sex pests are supporting me, or words to that effect? No, uh, I, people attribute all sorts of uh, things to me. Did, uh, did, I, I, I don't remember saying those words, but people ascribe all sorts of things to me. That sounds like a yes to me. Okay. Did you say he's a bit handsy? Uh, It's not a word I use, actually. So that's a definite no? I I would not have used that word, but, you know... It's a definite no, is it? Look, I'm saying... People maybe hear me say all sorts of things. I don't... It's not handsy, as it happens. It's not a word I use. Gabby, after months of scandal and sleaze engulfing the Tories... Can you explain what brought about this dramatic moment we're in? Who is Chris Pincher and what did he do? So Chris Pincher was uh, Deputy Chief Whip, um, which is a pretty powerful position within the Conservative Party. Yes, you're you know driving the Prime Minister's legislative agenda through and you are often trying to uh, strong arm MPs into supporting that when they're not willing. But as Deputy Chief Whip, that's also traditionally the sort of pastoral bit of the Whip's office. So MPs who are in trouble in their personal lives are supposed to come to you. An MP who has concerns about the way another MP is behaving, like they're drinking too much or they're behaving inappropriately or they seem to be having a nervous breakdown, you know, that's who you go to. So, you know, it is a position of power and it now looks very clear that it was a position of power that he exploited. He had previously had to resign from the Whip's office during a previous stint there in 2017 uh, after being accused of making a pass at a Tory activist and at a male Labour MP. He was investigated. There was an internal party inquiry, exonerated and allowed to return to government in a series of sort of middle-ranking ministerial jobs at the Foreign Office and the Housing. And since Pincher's resignation as Deputy Chief Whip, but not as MP, it's worth saying, As you say, there have been multiple allegations of sexual harassment against him in public. How did Johnson and the team at Number 10 originally respond to those? And when was it apparent that that story had completely fallen apart? So initially when he resigned, he um, resigned saying just that he'd embarrassed himself on a night out at the Carlton Club and been drunk, didn't mention anything to do with sexually inappropriate behaviour, very quickly emerged that was what happened. And Number 10 treated it very much as, well, you know, he's done a bad thing, but he's apologised, so he can stay a Tory MP, doesn't lose the whip, let them, you know, there doesn't have to be a by-election, none of that, let's move on. 
very quickly, um, it became clear that Pincher had, it's fair to say, a well-known reputation. And very quickly, people started asking questions, how come he ended up in this job in the first place? Why didn't you, what did you know about him and when? And number 10 continued to insist that it wasn't aware, firstly, of any specific allegations against him beyond what had already been in the papers. Uh, then that it, there were nothing, nothing serious um, in terms of specific allegations. And then when it became clear that actually there had been a very specific, very serious formal complaint against him at the Foreign Office and that the Prime Minister had been personally made aware of it, yet after that he continued to be um, to have a ministerial job and was indeed promoted to Deputy Chief Whip. That's when the entire defence crumbled and collapsed. Are you sure that the Cabinet Office in person told Mr Johnson about it? I know that the senior official briefed the Prime Minister in person because that official told me so at the time. And of course, at that point, any MP who'd gone out and repeated what they were told to the media looked like an idiot or a liar. And the Prime Minister's sort of ultimate excuse when it was presented to him that you did know um, and you told us that you didn't know, the answer was, I forgot which is, you know, an absolute dog ate my homework excuse. And I think that was sort of the breaking point for a lot of Tory MPs. It was just embarrassing. I think the most damaging accusation in the middle of all of this was our, our old friend Dominic Cummings popping up to say that the Prime Minister used to refer to Chris Pincher as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, which doesn't half suggest um, that he was very well aware of his reputation. Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. Now, has the Prime Minister ever said words to that effect? And I'm not asking for bluster and half-truth. We've all had enough of that. Yes or no? Kirstama challenged uh, the Prime Minister directly on that at Prime Minister's question, said, did you use these words? And Boris Johnson just sort of blustered and said, I'm not going to answer this question, to which um, I think we can safely assume the answer is yes then. And the Prime Minister did then make a statement about all of this on Tuesday night. Gabby, what did he say? So he took responsibility for appointing uh, Chris Pincher and said, you know, it had been a mistake to appoint him. Yes, I think it was a mistake. And I apologise for uh, for it. I think in, in, in hindsight, it was uh, the wrong thing to do. But by the t- uh, even literally as he was speaking, you know, you're, you're into the next stage of the crisis. That's no longer adequate to deal with the fact that, you know, your cabinet is resigning around you. Gabby, can you talk me through what happened on Tuesday night? On Tuesday night, um, literally just as the Prime Minister's interview was um, going out live, six o'clock and on Tuesday evening, first of all, um, Sajid Javid issued a resignation letter, so he was stepping down as Health Secretary. And in the last few minutes, uh, news that the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, uh, has just resigned. Uh, and then very quickly afterwards, uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, did exactly the same. Jonathan, I'm just going to interrupt you. Uh, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, has just uh, announced his resignation as well. Um, he has, uh, the public rightly expect uh, government... I think be, both uh, of them uh, came to the same decision for slightly different independent reasons. Both of them had been noticeably unhappy. Sunak was teetering on the brink of resignation, I think, in February when he was fined himself over Partygate and very, very nearly quit, but sort of reluctantly decided to hang on. Um, And he said in his letter that he'd struggled with the idea of leaving as Chancellor in the middle of a massive economic crisis. And his resignation letter was a sort of plea for more candour about economic policy. You know, he's basically saying, you can't just keep going around promising tax cuts and not saying how you're going to pay for them. And I think that then doesn't take much to tip Sunak 
over the end if you feel that you're you know not you're banging your head against a brick wall in your ministerial job it's much easier then to resign for reasons of integrity than if you're loving your job and it's all going brilliantly. Javid, I think one of the reasons his resignation statement was structured around explaining why he hadn't resigned before is that he's been known to be unhappy for a while, but had put up with it. And I think both of them reached that last straw moment. Of course, we've got a very quick mini cabinet reshuffle. How did that play out? So Nadim Zahawi is now um, the Chancellor, although probably about to be the shortest lived Chancellor in history, uh, given that the Prime Minister may not last much longer. Um, and he's succeeded as Education Secretary by his um, Deputy Michelle Donnellan and Steve Barclay, who was the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and, and, and uh, Treasury Minister, becomes Health Secretary. But I probably um, wouldn't get too attached to anyone in a new job at the moment. It's being reported that there's a delegation of your cabinet colleagues waiting in Downing Street, including the chief whip, the transport secretary and your new chancellor, waiting to tell you when you finish here today that it's time for you to go. How will you respond to that? Uh, uh, Darren, Darren you're, you're asking me to comment on... He's never going to resign. He's not going to resign in a kind of slightly embarrassed way or in an honourable way or in a, I just recognise the game's up's going to way. He's literally going to have his sort of fingernails prized off the desk um, and have to be sort of forcibly removed from number 10. He isn't going voluntarily. And at every step, I think probably the Conservative Party has underestimated his determination to stay and underestimated what they would have to do to get him out. Normally, your chancellor and one of your most senior cabinet ministers resigning, that might be a point where a, where a prime minister would go, OK, fair enough, game's up. Not this one. Coming up. What options do Johnson's critics have to oust him? Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday the 4th of July, so make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa. Gabby, then late yesterday afternoon, the Tories 1922 committee met. They decided not to change the leadership election rules, which would have allowed them to call another no-confidence vote in Boris Johnson pretty much straight away. Instead, they are holding a vote on their executive, which means 18 places are up for grabs, and those people will decide what the party does next. What do you think MPs will do in the meantime? I think that's why you're seeing MPs putting in letters to the 22 committee, the formal trigger for a vote of no confidence, even though in theory there's no point doing that at the moment, because I think they want to show the strength of feeling. If it looks like half the parliamentary party wants him gone, then I think 
those would be circumstances so extraordinary that the committee could say, you know what, let's just have a vote and, and get this over with. And I think number 10 is fully expecting that to happen now. It's just a question of whether, of timing, you know, is it this week, is it next week? Obviously, we're coming, you know, towards parliamentary recess in July, breaking up for summer holidays. And this is the last chance really to do it at the time of least disruption. If you had a leadership contest over the summer when Parliament isn't sitting, that would be a bit easier than having it in the middle of Parliament sitting, although replacing a sitting Prime Minister is never easy. Last night, returning from his disastrous appearance at the Liaison Committee, Johnson met with members of his cabinet and many of them told him it was time to resign. Reports said that that group included his Home Secretary Preeti Patel, his Transport Secretary Grant Shapps and extraordinarily his newly appointed Chancellor Nadeem Zahawi. Then Boris Johnson sacked Michael Gove and at time of recording this, Number 10 says the Prime Minister is going to fight on. Gabby, if he does go, obviously the talk is about who's coming next. Sunak, Truss, how much are their chances already scarred by remaining Johnson allies for so long? I think there's always a toss-up between... If you haven't been in cabinet, um, then you are either lacking experience, you know, and that's the case for Tom Tugendhat, the, the sort of the outsider candidate um, who's a sort of, well, you would say is a well-respected MP, but but doesn't have ministerial experience. And are you really going to put someone who's never even run a department um, in to run the country? Um, and then the other sort of outside cabinet untainted type person um, is Jeremy Hunt, who does have the experience, former health secretary, but was the person who ran against Boris Johnson last time and was thoroughly rejected um, by the Tory membership. So big risk to run him again. So you're left with people who have been in cabinet under Boris Johnson. And yes, all of them, I think, are to some extent, you know, tarred with that brush. They served with him for a long time. Even the ones who've recently got out, like, like Sunak and Javid, you know, they put up with an awful lot before they went. And that's going to be a real problem for the Conservative Party, I think. Gabby, finally, we're losing senior cabinet ministers left, right and centre. The leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, may end up resigning depending on the outcome of the Beargate police investigation. And obviously, the prime minister is also potentially on the way out. Where does this leave the country? In a mess, I think is the short answer to that one. I mean, we, we have really big serious problems which are sort of being shuffled to one side and and forgotten because of all this you know we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis inflation hitting double digit figures and and no sign that anyone quite knows how to bring it down we're entering another wave of covid which i think is going to present serious problems for the nhs pretty shortly real problems emerging in schools as you know kids are trying to catch up for that missed education there's a war on in europe you know lots of strikes industrial unrest never mind the usual you know background stuff like uh, the small problem of you know the planet burning nobody's doing much serious governing i think it's fair to say in the current climate in this atmosphere and it's not as if these are you know issues that we can afford to just stick on the back burner while we indulge in sorting out some avoidable problems that Boris Johnson has invented for himself and that's what's frustrating I think for many MPs about this all of this is self-inflicted it didn't have to happen you didn't have to put Chris Pincher in that job you didn't have to lie when you were asked about how much you knew about his background you know all of this is entirely avoidable Gabby Hinsliff thank you so much thank you my thanks to Gabby Hinsliff this is a fast-moving story but you can find all updates on the Westminster team's live blog at theguardian.com That's it for today. 
This episode was produced by Natalie Khatena and Alex Atak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>